This is the Relevant Life Church podcast, where we are about connecting with God, relating to people, and reaching our world. Tune in as our church goes through this week's teaching in God's Word. All right, well, thanks for being here today. Good morning. Hopefully you guys are enjoying uh, the summer weather that's kind of inconsistent. It's been like cloudy, but then it gets nice, right? Who, who enjoys the heat? Anyone? No? You want rain? I mean, we could pray to God for rain, too, I guess. No. <laughs> Stop. Ah. Well, thanks for being here today. I'm really excited um, to kick off this new series we're going to be getting to in just a second. But first of all, I want to echo, I guess, a couple things. I mean, mostly everything. Actually, everything I was going to echo is going in the announcements. But I want to just bring your attention to it in a different way. First of all, thank you for last week. Those of you who came out and served, if you didn't know, we, we dismissed our regularly scheduled gatherings to um, do outflow um, where, where our church left the building and we went out to the city and we impacted um, lives and hearts. And so if you weren't here or if you're here, we're going to um, show you guys a video today to kind of unpack and celebrate that. So check out this video. up this morning. So good, so good. How many people just feel happy when they see that? Anyone? It's so good. So I just want to th- say thank you so much for participating. If you participate, if not, there's going to be more opportunities coming up in the future to do so. Um, but it was awesome. This week we had multiple messages from people that we served just thanking us. And um, what, a, what, a, what a great thing to do. I don't know about you, but I love when we don't just talk the talk, but we get to walk the walk. And so thanks for participating. Um, I want to bring to your attention, um, it's on your seat, but the UGM Walk for Hope, that is another amazing way that we're going to represent and love our city. And so RLC's create a team, and we're going to walk the 5K together. You also can serve in the kids' zone and stuff, I believe. Um, so if you want ask questions about that through the church office, but you can go register on the Church Center app. Come show up with us. Um, it's another opportunity. We're just, again, showing that Relevant Life Church is present in the city. We're not just sitting in a building, but we love our community, and we're really trying to strive to do that. So, so that's a good word. It's a good word. And finally, last but not least, um, our staff is kicking off a soap group this Thursday for six consecutive Thursdays through, I believe, July 20th, and we would love for you to participate. And you're like, what's soap? Is that like what you wash your hands with? Yes. But um, in this current um, context, it's actually a basic Bible devotional process where, um, as a group, we're going to just go through and read a couple passages. We're going to go through the book of Mark. 
and you're going to just take an opportunity to pick a scripture or verse and privately write that down, privately write some observations and, and an application from that. So S-O-A-P and then write a prayer. And it sounds kind of intimidating, but it's seriously so easy. You don't have to be a theologian. And the heartbeat, as you're going to find out today, is that you would have an opportunity, a practical opportunity to engage the Bible. And so um, I think a lot of you guys um, can make it. If, you, if you're able to, I would really encourage you to show up. It's, got, it's gonna, not going to go longer than 7 a.m. if it even goes that long. And we would just love to have an opportunity to connect with you and our staff will be there. So um, say, I'm going to sign up. See if you, I almost caught you. Very few people said that because they're like, I'm not actually going to sign up. No? Okay. Um, Anyway, uh, with that being said, we're kicking off a brand new series today called Bible 101. Come on. Who's excited? I love it. Um, honestly, I was debating, are people going to be excited about this? Like, are people naturally excited about the Bible? And so as I was prepping and thinking about this, I started asking a lot of questions like, do, how much of an introduction do I need to give to this? Like, are people naturally going to be like, I want to learn about the Bible? Are you like, I don't care about the Bible. I wish I knew the Bible better. I don't know where your journey is, but I'm really excited. And as I was thinking about it, I want to give just kind of four overarching statements today. Um, to kind of preface the next seven weeks together. And I encourage you to prioritize. If you're in town, be here. If not, watch online. Bring your Bible. Engage, because I believe God wants to do some things in your life, in your heart. He wants to deepen your relationship with the Bible. So the first thing is that I love the Bible, and my prayer is that you would love the Bible too, okay? I love the Bible. I was talking to PK this week um, about this series, and I realized there are very few things in life I love or am excited about as the Bible. I'm serious. I'm so passionate about the Bible. If my house were to be on fire, um, other than my dog and my wife, my wife and my dog. I, I planned in my notes to say my wife first, but <laughs> my dog and my wife, Allie can run out on her own. I don't know about Ollie. Anyway, other than those two things, the Bible's one of the first first things I would grab. And obviously, like, I don't know if I've not been in that situation, but honestly, I love my Bible. I bring it with me often. And so um, I don't want you to just be someone that, that hears us read and talk about it. I want you to learn how to use it personally. I don't, I don't want um, you to just hear us tell you to look at it or think like, man, they just tell us to look at it. Do they look at it? I look at it. I love this Bible. I immerse my life in this Bible. I don't just tell you to bring your physical Bible. I carry my Bible with me all the time. Um, there's nothing in, or nothing in life that has so impacted me as this book. And so our desire throughout this series is to spark your journey with the Bible. And whether that's been a lifetime already or whether that's not at all, my encouragement is that you'd open your heart to hear what we're going to talk about because I believe there's something in it for you. The second thing I want to preface with is um, I believe the Bible in this series has the potential to change your life. And I realize that I say that about every series, like I said it about Love Where You Live, I believe it every time, but I really believe it about this one, okay? I really do. The Bible contains the keys that unlock our relationship with God. The Bible has knowledge that can break generational patterns in our lives. The Bible has the wisdom that can aid us in overwhelming circumstance. It has words that can comfort us in the worst of situations. It's what stirs up faith and hope in our hearts. It's what teaches us life's greatest truths and secrets. The Bible is full of never-ending, never-changing truth in a world that is full of wavering ideas. And the Bible, as Paul writes to Timothy, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Like, do we grasp this? Do we grasp what Paul is saying? It has the potential to thoroughly equip you for every good work. Do you believe that? Do you let it equip you? See, I think a lot of us hear this verse, all scriptures God-breathed, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every spiritual work for every religious work. See, oftentimes we compartmentalize our spiritual life from our regular life, and the Bible goes into the spiritual life column. 
rather than recognizing, no, this book is full of people in, in life situations where God stepped in and equipped them to do the impossible. And, and it's applicable to you and me. The third, third thing I want to bring up is that the impact of this series in the Bible depends on you. As we get into the content of the series, some of you may have heard some of this, materials, some of this material before. Others of you have never, maybe have never heard it before. Everyone comes from different walks of life, different distances trekked on their journey with God, and different levels in their understanding of what the Bible is. But the goal is that you would take on the challenge and that you would engage the Bible personally. Which leads to my final, and this is the most important. The goal of this series is not to tell you more from the Bible, but to teach and inspire you to learn from the Bible yourself. And I want you to catch that. Because again, a lot of times, churches are just full of pastors telling people about the Bible. And we feel so passionate to go, no, like people should be engaging this themselves. See, we are, our desire is that RLC would be people that not just hear about the Bible on Sunday, but that we would be people that personally use and know the Bible Monday through Saturday. That we would know how and have a personal relationship with this book. So that leads me to the title of my message this morning, How Do I Engage with the Bible Personally? That's a question that you can ask yourself. How do I engage with the Bible personally? Maybe it's a question you've asked yourself already. It's a question I want you to ask yourself. And today, hopefully, I'm going to be able to help answer it for you to a degree, but my desire is by the end of the day, I keep repeating myself, but we would inspire and spark interest in you to pursue this. And that, we, that through, by the end of the series, that you would have tools to walk away with to understand how to read this Bible. So would you pray with me before we jump in? God, we just come before you today, God, and you knew, God, before we even figured out we were going to do this series, God, that we were going to be talking about it. And I just pray, God, over each person here today, God, as we talk about this, this topic of the Bible. God, I pray, I was reminded this week of Luke 24, 45, where it says Jesus opened the minds of the disciples so they could understand the scriptures, God. And I pray that that passage would be true of what takes place through this series. God, there's some people here today, God, that trust the Bible, they believe the Bible. Others don't think there's anything wrong with it, God, but they just, they've never put their life into it well. God, and so I just pray that you would speak to each one of us, God, that you would open our hearts, God, and we just thank you for it. God, anoint my words today. God, give me clarity of thought, God, as we, as we continue on um, in this message. And we just thank you for it. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. amen. So if I were to go around the room this morning and ask how often do you personally engage with the Bible, what would you say? Rhetorical question this morning, but what would you say? Like, really evaluate yourself. How many times a day, a week, or a month do you read it? How often do you create space with no distractions to engage with it? How often do you jot down a verse on your phone or on a piece of paper and think about the words that you've read throughout the day? How often do you face an overwhelming circumstance and one of the first things you do, at least within the first 24 hours of that circumstance happening, is turn to the Bible? See, I asked these, these questions this morning to cause self-reflection in you because I think they're good questions to ask. But more than that, I also want to prove a point. See, questions like these can begin to bring condemnation on someone because you don't, you don't feel like you're measuring up. I think most Christians believe engaging in the Bible is a beneficial venture to their life. But these questions for most people don't, don't cause you to engage in the Bible more. They just, they just cause you to feel tension to go, I'm not measuring up in another area of my life. Which is why today I want to ask a different question. And I'm hoping this question settles in. And I think it's more valuable, at least on the onset of the series. And that question is, why don't people read their Bible? Why don't people read their Bible? See, this question is more valuable because instead of asking a quantitative question of like how often you're reading it, it speaks to the heart of why or why not you do something. So why don't you read your Bible? Why do I, even though I love the Bible at times, not read it? This week in asking this question, I realized many answers could be given for it. Things like busyness or lack of interest or, or prioritizing. 
But the thought struck me, what if there is something else that causes people to not read their Bible? Something that deters even the most disciplined from engaging in it. See, for me, time, prioritization, there we go, prioritization and discipline all play, play a role in me reading the Bible. But sometimes something else that is much harder to admit plays a role. And honestly, sometimes I just don't feel like it. Sometimes it's confusing. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it's applicable to certain seasons. And you can gasp, like, I don't know, like, is a pastor allowed to say that? I'm just being honest with you. See, the reality is sometimes in the midst of my business, stress, and circumstances, the Bible seems inapplicable, not relatable, or confusing. Which, in my opinion, is actually not accurate, but it's how it feels. In reflection for this message, I think this really leads, uh, this reality leads people to not engage in their Bible. I don't know about you, but at times for me, it it leads me to not engage in my Bible. This week, I ran across an article by Pew Pew Research entitled, Five Facts on How Americans View the Bible and Other Religious Texts. And out of the five facts given, one in particular caught my attention. In 2014, a study revealed that four out of ten Christians, so 42%, said reading the Bible or other, other religious materials is an essential part of what being Christian means to them personally. The next 37% said that reading the Bible is important, but it's not essential to being a Christian. And 21% said that reading the Bible is not an important part of their Christian identity at all. And these, these findings were interesting to me. And I would, I would go like, if you were asked this question, what would you say? And that's not to bring condemnation, but legitimately think. Six out of ten people, so 60% people, said either the Bible is not essential or it's just not important. And that evokes the question to me, why would people think that? And I think the typical Christian approach would be, shame on you. You know what book this is? This is the book, not a book. Like, right? Like, that's like the typical gist we get. Like, how dare you say this about the word of God? But as I started assessing these findings, I asked the question, what if people don't view the Bible as essential because they don't realize how life-giving it is? To me, this is the only reasonable explanation why someone would go, the Bible's not essential to my life. It's because they've never experienced how essential it really is. And this thought led me to, what if people don't view the Bible as essential because they don't realize how life-giving it is because they have never been taught or been given the tools that allow them to personally engage with the Bible, the tools that allow them to experience and engage and experience the life change that it is themselves. See, I think a lot of us, we hear, we hear people talk about the Bible. We hear pastors talk about the Bible, and we go, man, that's really cool. But then we go look to the Bible ourselves, and we're like, how do they get this out of this? Like, does anyone ever feel like that? You're like, I want to read it that way. Anyone? Like, just be honest. Like, I, I feel like that. I'm like, man, this is so cool. Like, where did they get this? And it's not because it's not in there. I think it's because people have never invested time in or been taught how to properly engage with the Bible. And for some of you, this is like, you're like, this is super elementary. Thank you, Trent, for like t- taking us through this. But I'm hoping to free some of you up to go like, man, like, this is not another sermon of like, you just need to prioritize harder. Some of you just need to go, I'm going to invest in a new skill that I've not ever had before. So what's the solution to this realization? I ran across this quote this week. I love this. Jane Johnson said this. I could simply share with you the treasures I've uncovered, but I'd rather give you the treasure map. And see, today I could get up here and I could tell you why the Bible is good. I could tell you from my experience why the Bible is good. But I'm more interested, our staff is more interested in this series in teaching you to figure that out for yourself. And so we're dedicating, we're, we're swapping how we think. And instead of preaching from the Bible, we're going to be preaching a lot about the Bible. So today, I'm going to use some passages of Scripture. I already have. 2 Timothy. But as we get into this, it's going to be more of a, a lecture-style teaching. And if you hate that, I'm sorry. I think it's still good for us to learn. So I'm going to do my best to make it interesting and as clear as possible. But I want you to journey in this. In, take, I want you to take a step in this journey with us. 
So how should someone begin to engage the Bible? How should someone begin to engage the Bible? Point number one this morning is seek to understand what the Bible really is. I'm sure many of us have heard the old song line before, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me, I stand up. The B-I-B-L-E, cool, okay, you guys know it. So no knock against this song this morning, okay? I I actually, uh, it's catchy and it's a great declaration and I believe it. But here's the problem. See, American Christianity still expects people to live by this line. But do people even know what the Bible is? Because to tell someone they should stand alone on something as their sole foundation is a big declaration, especially if they have no idea what they're standing on. So we're like, the Bible, let's stand on it. Do you even know what the Bible is? And what I want us to grasp is even if you could answer that question, which we're going to get into in a second, do you actually know what it is? Do you know what you're standing on? Do you know why you should stand on it? See, as America has become increasingly post-Christian and removed itself from biblical knowledge being the standard, more and more people don't really know what the Bible is. We don't have the Sunday school foundation that we used to have, that like all Christians were just like, this is the book, I read the book, and I've built my life on the book. Like, we live in a different world, but we're still preaching the same message, you should live on this book, but people don't know why. Which is why seeking to understand it is so important, it's the first step you need to really engage with it on the onset of the series. So if I were to ask you to answer the question, what is the Bible, how would you respond? If I had to take a poll this morning, I'm assuming I'd get a lot of, it's God's word. It's God's word. And let me preface before I tear this apart. I'm not, gonna knock, I'm not knocking on this. I do believe it's God's word. I, I honestly believe that with my whole heart. But if you're not a Christian, what does that even mean? Does that mean that God wrote this book in heaven, hand-delivered it off by an angel to a human? Like, what, what, is God's, what does it mean it's God's word? See, and, as, and although I think this, this statement is true, I think it's settling for a shallow answer. See, what the Bible re- really is is something strong to stand on. But if you don't know what you're standing on, it's actually not all that good to say that. So what is the Bible? So this may be, this is, let's just say this is a, a starting idea. But what I want to do this morning is, again, I'm trying to, I'm thinking from a teacher's point of view. And, I, and today I'm, I'm going to like loft a bunch of ideas your way, a bunch of material your way, and your job's to chew on it. So as I was sitting here this week thinking about like, what is the Bible, I decided, okay, like if I had to tell someone what the Bible is, what would I write? And so I wrote out seven statements to go, this is what the Bible is. And I want to share them this morning. And so you may get all of them. You may not understand a few of them. That's totally fine. Your job is to take a photo of them if you don't know ask someone or Google, okay? So the first statement is that the Bible is dozens of books written over a span of 100 years. And this is important, right? Like, God didn't just, like, drop this off, like, in one fell swoop. The Bible wasn't written all at once, okay? So, like, that's important. Let's put in context. It contains two main sections known as the Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament is Jewish text. Didn't know if you knew that. It's not like Jesus wrote those texts. The New Testament is documents of the life of Jesus and from the early church. We have eyewitness accounts. We have history accounts. All these different things in there. Letters. Both testaments are full of writings that went through an extensive critique to ensure they met multiple criteria that determined whether they could hold the title of God's authoritative word. I know that's a big sentence, but at the end of the day, like, I'm giving you that context because, like, people may try to say, like, it's not reliable. It's just, it's just random ideas. Well, no, there's, like, a bunch of history, and next week we're going to get into this even more. PK is going to share even more on this, this idea, but, but it, it, I want you to understand that it went through a, a complex process to get to be what it is. So Google the biblical canon if you have more questions on that. This is my favorite line. The biblical or the Bible contains historical records, 
Beautiful poetry, God-given prophecies, sincere letters, powerful eyewitness accounts, and so much more. And I think that's so important to understand because it's not just all one author. This is spanning hundreds of years. It's all different situations. And you probably can find a situation that fits your situation when you start to understand why these were written and when they were written. It is writings recording what God has done, is doing, and is going to do. And I love that because you see how God was faithful. You see what God is doing. You're like, I don't see how God's doing it. We're still living acts. Like, it's beautiful. We're still living in Acts. And, he, and he's going to do. You see prophecy that people, like, can see. God's going to come back. God's going to do this. He's going to restore. That he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going he's gonna to do these different things. It was written down by people who are inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, making it God's word. See, because the Holy Spirit is God's spirit. So that's why it can be called God's word. And so, again, some of you may have never heard this before. Some of you are like, thank you, Trenton. I already knew this. But my question is, could you unpack it? Do you know why these statements are true? Do you just know the context of them or do you know why they're actually true? And if you don't know, it's not, there's no condemnation on you. My goal today is to inspire you to realize maybe there's more to the Bible than you currently know. See, my desire is to cause you to, to seek deeper understanding of this versus just settling for a Christianese answer. See, I think too many of us, including myself, have settled in our current knowledge and we need to dig deeper. We come to conclusions quickly, and we need to keep curiosity. Throughout this series, we're not going to be able to unpack everything about the Bible, because the Bible is a personal lifetime journey. Personal lifetime journey. I remember a couple, uh, about a month back or so, I was reading about Billy Graham, and one of these things he was struggling with early on in his ministry, in the middle of his ministry, was this, this point in time where he was like, is the Bible really true? And um, this book kind of summed up this process of how Billy searched out all these different things and so forth. But I, was, I loved it because I made it, it made me realize, like, Billy Graham, probably one of the greatest evangelists that our nation has ever seen, he wrestled with the Bible. Why? Because it's a personal journey. It's not something you just grasp and, and you're good to go. It's a lifetime process. This is honestly one of the biggest personal reasons why I went back for my master's, because I wanted to understand new layers. Sure, I'm a pastor, and I wanted, I wanted to be able to understand the Bible better, but ultimately, for me personally, I wanted a greater relationship with this book. And I want you to as well. I want our church to get excited about the Bible. I want you to get goosebumps as the words of the Bible and the meaning of the text jump off the page to you. I want you to see the context of the stories and find meaning, purpose, and help in your story. I want you to know what it is that you are reading which leads me to my second way to engage the Bible. And this one's going to be the most complicated, but I'm going to do my best to unpack it. Learn the proper way to read the Bible. Learn the proper way to read the Bible. In technical educational lingo, there's a term for this called hermeneutics. How many people have heard of hermeneutics? I can't even say it. Hermeneutics before. Okay, so some of you. Okay, so hermeneutics means a method of interpretation. And it can refer to other literary texts, but primarily it's talking about the Bible, okay? So I'm going to just give you some ideas of how hermeneutics works. So hermeneutics refers to how someone goes about understanding what the Bible says. It's a strategic process that guides someone's engagement with the Bible. It's a filter to use as you explore. It's, it's a set of questions that you ask of the text that bring clarity. So for instance, what was the cultural, what was the cultural context of when this text was written? What did the culture look like? What were their values? What was their belief? What was the historical context of this? And some of you may be super bored, but like, this is what makes the Bible exciting. When you find this stuff out is when I get up here and like, we unveil something to you from the scripture, like that's sick. It's because we're asking these questions. We're finding these questions. So I'm teaching you the process. So what happens is you ask these sort of questions and you go, okay, so like with this knowledge, how does this affect this text? 
And the very first thing I actually remember learning in my first bachelor's degree class was my teacher explaining hermeneutics. The process it was, the questions it was to inspire, and why it's so vital, so, and why it is so vital. And I quickly came to realize that hermeneutics is the most valuable thing a Christian can learn. And sadly, I don't think a lot of us know how. And that hurts my heart. When, we were in, when I was in youth ministry just a little bit ago, like this is something we went through over periods of time. And I didn't teach it per- perfectly, but I wanted our students to grasp this. Because like I won't always be here. Like our pastors won't always be here. This church may not always be here. Like you don't know what the future holds, but the Bible will be. And your ability to learn from it is so key, it's so essential. History contains multiple examples of people that set aside hermeneutics and they grossly misinterpreted the Bible. Like if you, if you read about the, the World War II and the Nazis, you see that Hitler actually, like they burned Bibles, they rewrote the New Testament to actually give um, reason and excuse to expel the Jews from the earth. Like this is a thing, slave owners. Like if you look at the history of slavery, you see that they took passages of scripture that we look at today and would never think that that is what that means and they, and they use it as an excuse. And whether we recognize it today, they may not have as bad of consequences, people still misinterpret the Bible. You may, and that's not always bad, but we do need to recognize, we need to have a care. We need to know how to read it. This is why Paul tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. The King James, I love, says, study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. And this quote, so good, D.A. Carson says, we are dealing with God's thoughts. We are obligated to take the greatest pains to understand them truly and explain them clearly. So the question is, how do we begin to do this? You're like, great, Trenton, thank you for telling me I should read the Bible better. I already knew I struggled with it. Like, how do I begin to do this? So a whole sermon series probably could be dedicated to what I'm going to teach you next, but we're going to do a Bible 101 overview, if you will, okay? And I I promise, if you have questions about this, come talk to one of our pastoral staff. PK teaches the bachelor's level class at Northwest University on hermeneutics. So if you have questions, he's the one to go to. And honestly, I was joking with Larry this morning, but if we screw it up, you can just ask Larry. He'll fix it later, okay? So put your educational hats on this morning. We're going to jump into this. So in Bible college, one of the one thing students learn other than hermeneutics is this process of how to interpret the Bible, okay? And so one common system they learn is from a book called Grasping God's Word that's called The Interpretive Journey, okay? The Interpretive Journey. It's this beautiful map up here. And basically what this, this interpretive journey does is it's a five-step guide that as you read the text, you start asking these questions, you start finding the answers. And I'm going to also show you a simple overview of how to start finding answers because you're going to, at the end of this, go, thank you for telling me the process, but this still doesn't help me find the answers, but we're just going to get into this, okay? So step number one, say their town. Say their town. Okay, so what did the text mean to the original biblical audience? So in other words, when the text was originally written, what happened that caused the writing? Why was it being written? What was the cultural context that they lived in? What was happening at this point in history? What events spurred on the writer to write this? What was the author's purpose? So for, for example, I preached on Deuteronomy 6 in March, okay? So let's say you go back to that message in your head, if you even remember it, but you read in Deuteronomy 6, and you're seeing that, that uh, Moses is writing to the Israelites, and he's saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all that process, okay? So when you start to read this text, you can just settle for what you understand from your cultural ta- context, 
But what you need to do is you need to push past and go, what did this mean to the original audience? And if you remember in that passage of scripture, I started, or that, that message, I started showing you what the context was because I asked this question. Why was Moses writing this? Well, the nation of Israel was just slaves in Egypt. They're, they're coming into their own nation and he starts giving them these directions. So you start to understand the context. You need to ask questions like, why was this written a thousand years ago? And why does it being written a thousand years ago affect how the text is understood today? And then once you drill down on this, you jump into step number two, the width of the river. Say the width of the river. So what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? So in other words, now that you have their context, you know your context because you live in it, right? Like hopefully, like you don't, like you realize we have technology nowadays and stuff like that. That'd be good. Running water, I didn't know if you knew that, but like they didn't have that back then. So once you figure this out, you start to figure out the width of the river. So by the width of the river, you see like it says culture, language, time, situation. So basically what is happening here is you're starting to go, how far is the expanse of water between what they understood and what I understand today? See, and this is important because as you ask these questions, what they said a thousand years ago may not mean the same thing that you read today. You may not say that the same way. You may not understand it the same way. And so you have to ask questions like, what, were, what was different culturally? What was different technologically? What was different politically? And as you do this, you can just pull out all these different differences, which then leads us to the next step. And this is probably the most important step of the whole process, which is cross the principalizing bridge. What is the theological principle in the text, okay? So first of all, we need to understand what theology is. So what is theology? Simply said, it's the study of God, okay? So what's a theological principle? A theological principle is a God principle. It's a God truth, okay? So when you read a text, you're looking at the text, and you're going, what is the principle, the God principle that I can pull from this text and put into my day? Because that's the point of reading the Bible. Like, it's not just for knowledge of what was there. It's to impact your life today. And so this process is so important. Okay, so for example, let's look at John three sixteen. How many people have heard that verse? Hopefully you have. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so we look at this text. What is it, what's some principles that we could pull from it? God loves. Okay, it's not rocket science. God loves humanity. God's love spurred him to action because it said for God so loved that he sent. It spurred him into action. God's love leads him to the desire of eternal relationship with you and I. Okay? So these are principles that we pull out of the text. Does everyone get that? Nod your head if you're understanding. Okay? So we're pulling that principle. Now what you have to do, though, is you have to consult the biblical map. Step number four. So how does this theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? In other words, does the principle you think you found line up with other principles in the Bible? This is what people call scripture, interpreting scripture. So do the observations I just made on God's love line up with the rest of the Bible? Yes. Yeah, you're good. You Be confident. It's like a lecture hall, okay? I'm trying, I'm, I'm channeling my inner PK as he's teaching at Northwest, okay? So yes, they're true. I mean, God's love is much more expansive and deep than that, but at the end of the day, like, I gave principles, I pulled principles from that text that are still applicable to me today. So, what we have to understand, though, is this may not always be the case. And I'm going to give you like just a way off example so you understand. But let's say that you're reading the verse of Scripture in the Old Testament where Moses kills the Egyptian out of a reaction. If you didn't know that was in there, you should read the Exodus. It's a good book. A lot of good stuff in there, okay? So he kills the, the Egyptian out of a reaction. And you're like, the principle is I can kill someone if I'm angry and I have a reaction. 
That is not a good principle to pull from the text, okay? Like, there's multiple other things in the Bible that point differently. So if you were to take this and you were to look, okay, here's my principle. This is their town. This is my town. And you're looking at this big map and you're going, where else in the Bible does it talk about murder? Well, only a couple chapters later in Exodus does it say, do not murder, okay? So, like, that was a big no-no. Jesus talks about it in the New Testament. He says that even if you have anger in your heart, he pretty much makes that equivalent to what murder is. So what you're doing is you're going, okay, so this is the principle I have. Is this way off out there, okay? This is, this, is this, is this, can this be sort, supported in other areas? Which then leads us to our final step, which is our, time, our town. Say our town. How do these principles inform us today? So in other words, after you understand what the principle meant in their context, then you pull into your context, you cross the bridge, and you step into your town, step number five, and you go, what does it mean for me today? So for instance, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So that what you can apply today is that's a truth you can bank your life on. When you feel like you've messed up and your life is falling apart, you can remember that God loves you. And he loved you so much that he sent his son that even today, Jesus' um, presence on this earth has changed your life. That's, that's a truth I'm pulling into my life from that scripture. You can look at it and go, God so loved the world, not just Trenton. So that means other people need to know God's love. So what's the principalizing text, or what's the principle? I need to tell other people about this love. I need them to know who Jesus is. And so this may be super elementary to you. You may be totally lost. If you want to have a conversation after, I'm again putting myself out there so you can come talk to me. This was a super fast process, Pastor, but what I want us to grasp this morning is when you learn to do this, A, it becomes second nature. When I first took um, biblical interpretation in college, I had to do all these assignments basically doing this process way in depth. But now every time I read the Bible, I just start asking these questions without even thinking about it. I start going, what was the context? Like, how does the context then fit into my context? Like, that's what happens. It just becomes a second nature thing, which is beautiful. And a lot of times I think we reserve this process for preachers, right? They got to have the right, right process. I don't need that stuff. But no, like God like allowed you to have his word so you could read it as well. Right. And so what I want to do today um, before we get into our last point is I want you to give, I want to give you an example of why this is so powerful. And this, this example is going to be very specific. It's going to be um, a little bit, um, I wouldn't say gory. It's going to contain some knowledge that might... Um, it's just going to be, it's going to be graphic in what I'm going to share. But what I want to do is I want to show you why context is so powerful. Um, in the last, it was a couple months ago, I was in my master's, and I had the privilege of having Dr. Craig Keener, who's a professor at this um, Asbury Seminary, so Asbury Revival. He's one of the professors at the school. He's one of the best theological, um, Pentecostal theologians in the world today, and I got to have him come teach in my class. It was super cool. Um, I got to ask him a question. He got to answer it. I was like, this is legit, okay? Like, just so cool. And in my class, he spent a lot of time talking about evangelism. He spent a lot of time talking about Paul in the New Testament and how that affects us today. And I remember towards the very end, after like five hours of lecture, four hours of lecture, he started to make this comment. And a friend of mine um, ended up, was voice memo recording the this, this session. So I asked him to send it to me so I could type it out because I was going to include it in a paper I wrote. I didn't end up doing that, I don't think. But I wanted to use it today because it's so powerful, okay? So keep in mind, he's been talking about evangelism in the New Testament. This is what he says. Some of you may think that this is a harder part of the world to evangelize than some other parts. He was talking about the U.S., and then he goes on to give context to the culture of the early church. He says, this was a world in which most people worshipped other gods. They grew up thinking that there were spirits in the trees and spirits all around them. They were used to thinking, um, they were used to thinking this way. So changing that way of thinking was hard. 
Back then, they threw out babies on trash heaps to be eaten by vultures or dogs, and they threw out more girl babies than they did boy babies. Some people argue that is not true because if they did do that, the population would decline. But we know from ancient sources that the population did decline in areas where this was practiced. We have census documents from Egypt where you had two men for every one woman because the girl babies were thrown out. Now, the babies weren't all eaten. Sometimes people would come and pick them up and take them home and adopt them as, a child, as children. But Rome would penalize you tax-wise for doing this. They didn't penalize you for raising them as slaves, though. So many of these babies were raised as slaves. Boys for hard labor. Girls were, um, would serve as barmaids at the taverns where a lot of people frequented or behind there in the inns as involuntary prostitutes. And we know from Pompeii there were signs in the sides of the walls advertising the different prostitutes with pictures of them and their respective prices for, the for um, what they were delivering in prostitution. There's an ancient saying that goes, slaves and prostitutes were for ordinary needs. Wives were to bear legitimate children. Because of the shortage of women due to the throwing out of girl babies, most Greek men did not marry until the age of 30. And until then, men could get sex with slaves, with prostitutes, or with each other. In Greek culture, it was very common for adult Greek men to sleep with boys just under the age of pu puberty. Most Greek men apparently were bisexual because of the shortage of women available. Romans were a bit more selective. It doesn't matter. It didn't matter if it was adult men or boys so much. It was more of a matter if they were, um, if you were a respectable man, you had to do it with someone of lower class. And then I remember him saying, which like, if you're like taking this as me, you're like, this is appalling. This is insane. And this is what he said. So this is kind of, this is the kind of world that Paul had to evangelize in. Christians were less than one-tenth of one percent of the Roman Empire, even by the end of the first century. So 70 years after Jesus left, or if I'm right on that math, somewhere around there. If that is what Paul had to evangelize and God worked through Paul, there's nothing to stop us. And I share this with you this morning, A, because like this is just a cool nugget to keep in your mind as you embrace culture, but I want to show you the power of understanding and having hermeneutics. Because if you read the New Testament, Paul wrote a majority of the New Testament, and he talked about fleeing sexual immorality. He talked about persecution. Paul was journeying through an earth that had never heard of Jesus that looked like this, and this is what his letters were all about. Like, don't, you can't tell me that's not interesting. You're telling me you don't have anything in the Bible that can relate to what you're facing today? I don't know about you, but we're facing a lot of issues that may not have the same exact packaging as what Paul dealt with, but there's a lot of the same heartbeat behind them. And so every time you pick up the New Testament now, I just gave you context. Just picture Paul every day waking up to a world that was like that. Why do we know this? Because of hermeneutics. Because we apply this process. We don't just open it and read a sentence. We go, okay, like there's more out there. And what's beautiful is like on your phone today is like a, is a computer that has so much knowledge. You don't even have to carry commentaries anymore. Like, like we were talking to our, our last Connect group about how they had typed on typewriters for their sermons and like all this stuff. I'm like, you're, you live in a glorious day, ladies and gentlemen. Larry can attest to that, I am sure. He's like, amen. Okay. So now I point this out. Again, because I want you to see this, but I, again, I know that after me pointing this out, you're like, okay, this is great process and all trend, but like, where do I begin? Like, how do I do this? Like, this is great, like, the, the interpretive journey makes sense and all that, but where do, where, where do I start? And my response would be, well, you need to start to invest in some, some sort of, of um, commentaries or some sort of biblical knowledge material that can give you greater context. And you're like, well, I have to pay to invest in this. Like, I have to put money. And I go, like, well, you pay to invest, like, in hobbies, like, that are fun. So, like, pay to invest in your soul as well, okay? Amen. So, I want to just give you a couple. 
And I don't even feel like super confident like these are the ones to get. But what I want to point out about these is like, here's, here's two commentary sets. Um, the New Testament one is actually written by Craig Keener, and I have used it just a little bit over the last couple of months since I bought it. It's really cool. That commentary is all about the biblical background of what you're reading. So um, Craig kind of, like where I've read, kind of throws in some understanding that you may not get otherwise. The Wearsby commentary is more of kind of like a devotional process. But for instance, like when we preached on Nehemiah um, two weeks ago, and I shared those stats about like how many people were included, I pulled that from Wearsby's commentary. So like I'm not just like sitting there counting the people. Like as glorious as that would be to take credit, no, like I'm stealing it from someone else, okay? Like I'm not sitting there going like one, two, wait, is this the same person, three, four? Like no, I'm not doing that. So my encouragement is get something. And the reason I put these two is because like the price of the Wearsby commentaries together, that's for the entire Bible, although it's smaller. If you try to buy a single like a, a commentary for a book of the Bible, it's like as much as like just one of these. So what I'm trying to do is just get you started, okay? So if you have more questions on that, again, ask Larry or PK because they've read a lot more commentaries than me. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to challenge you. Like these are on Amazon. Just go buy something. Find something that can begin to supplement as you're reading the text what, what you're reading about. A lot of commentaries have like a whole introduction se- like section where it goes, who wrote the book? Why did they write the book? Like just questions that we were asking. Like you'll find it written for you. You don't have to like try to come up with it. Like God, just download this. Like no, like it's right there for you, okay? And some of you are like, this is really, like, this is really enlightening trend. Like I already knew this, but just stick with me, Okay. So um, the other thing, and this is super practical that I point about this, is I would say buy something on either the Logos app or like on, the, on, on um, Kindle through Amazon. Why? Because I don't know about you, but those people with those study Bibles are walking around slapping people. Like that's, those are big things to carry around, okay? Like, and I don't know about you, but I don't want to be like, oh, let me carry my backpack. I got like two 40-pound commentaries in it. Like that's not what I want to do. What's beautiful is I have a lot of this digitally, so I get to carry a smaller Bible, and I always have at my fingertips more information. So when God brings a passage of scripture on my mind, I'm like, what's the context? Or when I'm in my devotions and a question pops out, what does this mean? I literally pull my phone out and I go, look. So that's super beautiful about this, okay? Which leads me to my final takeaway to engage the Bible. Number three, just start somewhere. Just start somewhere. There are certain people in this world that look at a daunting challenge and just feel inspired to climb up the mountain and do it. But for the majority of us that live on earth, that's not the case, right? We look at a daunting challenge like, can I quit? Like, can I get, is there something easier I can do? The reality is, if, any, if anyone that's ever been good at anything is that way just because they started, just because they, they tried, just because they worked on it. And I love this Chinese proverb that says, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And I love how Paul tells Timothy this, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. See, what he's saying is investing in your spiritual life is worth more than you can invest even in your physical life. And I think that could be taken out of context and, and be used as an excuse to not take care for your body, which I'm not saying. But like at the end of the day, I want you to see like Paul said this. He realized that investing in your soul was so key. So my challenge is if you were to read the Bible 10 minutes a day, try to make it 15 or 20. If you only read it one time a week, try to make it two times a week. If you never engage this book on your own, make it one time a month. Put it on a Saturday morning for 30 minutes. Go buy yourself a nice cup of coffee. I don't care. Like just do something that makes you enjoy the experience. Like I, I wrote this, I was telling, telling this to Allie and I wrote this in my notes. She like laughed at me, but it's so true. Like go buy a $150 expensive leather bougie Bible. Why? Because if you invest in something, you're more likely to use it. And I don't believe that in all things in life. Like yes, sometimes you should settle. But like this is a lifetime journey with a book that you can hold onto. Go, go buy something nice that you enjoy using. 
Don't just be like, I'm gonna go to Walmart and buy the, the first paperback one I can find. Okay, like find a nice Bible. And as I close, I want you to take this to heart. When you think about reading the Bible and way if it's worth engaging in, I don't know if that's in your day, in life, remember that people in history so believed in the power of this book that they sacrificed and died for it to be printed in your language. And this is a part of church history that we often miss out on because what happens is we see the Old Testament and then we see Jesus born and then Acts basically leaves us, the rest of the New Testament leaves us basically with the early church and then the Bible stops. But history shows that the church obviously grew massively from that. And we see story after story where we got things like the Bible, like the biblical canon that I said, Google. Like, you'll see how it was formed. And more importantly, you will see people that actually in certain parts of the world, in the church, the, the, the church leadership would hold on to the Bible and keep it in a language that the common people could not read. And people died so that you could have it in English. And you could have 40 different translations in English. And I don't have time to get into all of them, but I just want to read just a couple statements of a different, couple different people today. So John Wycliffe, for instance, defied the church who tried to keep the Bible out of the hands of common people and made the first handwritten English Bible language manuscripts. John Huss, one of his followers, promoted Wycliffe's ideas that people should be permitted to read the Bible in their own language. Huss was burned at the stake with Wycliffe's manu- manuscript Bibles used as kindling to light the fire. Martin Luther also defied the church and translated the Bible into the commonly spoken dialect of the German people. Luther was exiled from the church due to this. William Tyndale holds the distinction of being the first man to ever print the New Testament into the English language. And if you notice, like Tyndale, that's like a printing company and that's like really cool. Wycliffe is like um, um, translator um, movement that's began. So it's just putting in context if you've ever heard of those. But Tyndale ended up evading um, people, bounty hunters that were trying to oppress him, um, arrest him because um, he was doing this New Testament project. But he evaded them and he printed the New Testament um, in English. Many printed copies were bu- burned as soon as the bishop could confiscate them. People risked death by burning if they were even caught with mere possession of one of these books. In the end, Tyndale was caught, incarcerated for 500 days, and then was strangled and burned at the stake. And this is just scratching the surface of men and women that made this accessible to you today, something that you take for granted. And although America's not facing a shortage of Bibles, there's still many languages out there that do not have the Bible and translators still facing persecution for trying to translate. I ran across a story from, I couldn't find the exact date because it had been an article posted multiple dates, but more and more recently, I think, from somewhere in the Middle East that they wouldn't disclose where Wycliffe translators were beaten and killed and then the, all their translation materials were killed. Luckily, like a hard drive was kept, but they were killed recently for translating the Bible for someone else to read. The thing that like you never pick up, they died for. And the question is why? Well, because the people that dislike this book think it's worth that much effort to get rid of. And the people that know how life-giving it is think it's worth their life to sacrifice so that you could have it. Brian Stiller said this, it's difficult for Westerners to understand the euphoria many experience when they hold for the first time a Bible in their own language. I live where Bibles are most, in most hotel rooms, where bookstores carry multiple translations, and smartphone Bible apps are downloaded by hundreds of millions. But this is not true in the world's majority. Having the Bible in one's language is an exquisite privilege. So the choice is up to you. I know today is not your typical sermon, but I hope that somewhere you felt empowered to go, no, I can begin this journey. And everyone's gonna start on a different level. Everyone's gonna be able to do this. And that you feel inspired to go like, there's more to the Bible that I'm not catching. And that I can have a relationship with this where, where I read the stories and those stories speak into my life. 
I can have a relationship with this before I call my spouse when my boss is rude to me, that I can pull this book up or I can pull scripture in my mind up and go, no, like I'm called to treat this person a certain way. That you can go, man, like we have no financial backing right now. Like I don't know how we're gonna make it to the end of the month. And you can read about a God that supplies all of our needs. This is what this book is full of. Like we're not just getting up here and giving you lofty ideas. We're pulling it from this. And I want you to be able to pull it from it yourself. So I wanna pray over you, but my last plug is that soap group. And I know it's super simple and that's not gonna be your one size fix like for everything. Like, but at the end of the day, I believe the reason we did that soap group was because we were doing this series, not vice versa. We go, we went, we want a practical opportunity as we preach on this for people to come join with us. And you don't have to be a professional at all. Like soap has nothing to do with actual hermeneutics. It's just you engaging with the text. And the thought hit me this week too as I was prepping. Those people in other countries, even with Martin Luther, like who, and, and William Tyndale, these people that translated it, it's not like they were handing out commentaries in English too for the people to read. God spoke to them and we're still here today through this book, even though they didn't have context. And so you just need to learn to engage in it. So take the challenge, take the challenge. That's where I wanna end. So let me pray over you. God, I just thank you so much, God, for each individual. God, and I believe that you're gonna use this series in, a, in really great ways. And I just pray, God, I know that each person in here has a different relationship with the Bible. God, some people have been living by it for so long, God, and they engage with it well, God, but maybe they needed just um, an extra um, kick, God, to keep going, God, to keep digging, to keep searching. God, for others, God, maybe thought it wasn't a part of the Christian life. Maybe it wasn't necessary. God, and I pray that they would begin to discover God, engage with themselves to see how powerful it is. God, and I just pray ultimately, God, that this word would not fall to the ground. God, as I've seen people dedicate their lives to this book, God, and sacrificing for this book, God, because they believed it was so powerful, God, I pray that we would recognize how powerful it is, God, and that you would show yourself powerful through it. God, that you would speak to us, that the Holy Spirit, God, would fill each person's heart and mind right now. God, so as they engage with it, maybe this week or this afternoon or tonight, God, they would sense in their heart, God, what you're saying to them. God, you would speak to them. God, that you would, you would, you would create a moment like I've had so many of where I'm just reading a random passage of scripture and I get hit right between the eyes. I'm just like, oh my goodness, like I needed this. And we just thank you for it, God. God, we thank you for the individuals that have been martyred, God, so that we could have it. God, and we pray that we would be people that live by it, not just hear about it, God, but we would be people that live by it. And we just thank you for it. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Well, thanks for being here today, church. Remember, again, we got some things coming up that you can register for today, so check out the Church Center app. Enjoy the sun if the clouds burn off today, and we will see you in the weeks to come. Here at Relevant Life Church, it's our mission to see people connect with God relate to one another, and reach our world. This single statement drives everything we do as a church. Our hope is that today you were encouraged in this. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day.